English clergyman Matthew Henry preached the truth when he noted that they that die by famine die by inches. We have known for a long time that famine is one of the worst ways to check out of this world. Starvation, if you last that long in the midst of famine, is according to the organization What Culture ranked as the 10th worst death imaginable. Ahead of it are checking out by dehydration, decapitation, lethal injection, the electric chair, crucifixion, decompression, burning, radiation, and scapism come out ahead. The top of that list, scapism, harkens back to the days of the ancient Persian Empire. The Greeks described the torture for us, explaining that the victim was placed within a hollowed-out tree trunk, with their head, hands, and feet visibly protruding from their makeshift prison. From there, they were force-fed milk and honey in order to trigger a bout of diarrhea. Once the fireworks began in the lower half of the trunk, the Persians would slather on the rest of the milk and honey so that insects, who disturbingly are attracted to diarrhea, would burrow and bite into the body in order to establish a literal colony within the victim's colon. Unable to move at all, the victim would be driven mad, slashing their own body in an attempt to break free the only result of which would be the development of gangrene sores. Eventually, dehydration, septic shock, and famine's friend of starvation would claim the unfortunate man or woman's life. My claustrophobic self has some problems with the overall list, as it excludes being buried alive but we'll keep scapism up on top of that list, along with crucifixion and burning. Maybe being buried alive doesn't make it onto your personal top 10 list to avoid, but you have to admit that there's something freaky about the fact that multiple devices were patented for bells to be installed above cemetery plots so that a corpse could reveal to the waking world that they had been buried prematurely. I live a middle-class lifestyle in America. That means that I don't have to exert much thought about going hungry. In fact, famine has become non-existent within my home country. This doesn't mean that there aren't hungry people, as around 30 million citizens in my country are what government bureaucrats deem to be food insecure. But famine which dictionaries define as virulent manifestations of intense starvation which cause substantial loss of life, is not a threat within the developed world. In fact, it shouldn't be a fear anywhere in the world, as international connectedness along with robust international aid efforts have given us the tools that the world needs to eradicate famine. That has happened in every region of the world but Africa, where we still lack the collective will to enact all available actions that would prevent widespread mass suffering. Historian Stephen Devereux believes that it can be done. His optimism comes in part from the fact that the last famine in Europe occurred within the Soviet Union. The last one in Asia transpired directly because of Mao Zedong's horrifically misplaced policies 
during the Great Leap Forward. What humanity has collectively learned is that famine is both preventable and treatable through intelligent government interventions. Unfortunately, we all too often lack the emotional capacity in order to properly make timely interventions, both within our own countries and on the behalf of others. Our previous episode ended with the East India Company performing the corporate act of regulatory capture over the government of India. They no longer had to depend upon profitable trade in order to purchase the next rounds of exportable products. Instead, they began utilizing tax dollars extracted from the workers of India in order to purchase their goods. In effect, they had turned the citizens of the Indian subcontinent into indentured servants forced to work for the benefit of the London-based company. As the calendar flipped towards 1770, everything looked rosy for the EIC and its shareholders. What they didn't know was that famine, one of the four horsemen of the biblical apocalypse, was about to rear its ugly head. It was as if Nostradamus was looking towards South Asia when the infamous 16th century seer predicted that the sword of death is now approaching us, in the shape of pestilence, war more horrible than has been known in three lifetimes, and famine. This episode will continue to advance our story regarding the East India Company's control of India, but at times we'll branch off to explore the causes and effects of some of history's worst famines. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon the East India Company. Episode number four, The Bengal Famine of 1770. We often associate the term monsoon with drenching rains, but at its core, a monsoon is merely a seasonal wind. Picture the Indian subcontinent, shaped like a downward-facing triangle, with the mighty Himalayas gracing its northern end and the western and eastern ghats flanking its sides. While I haven't had the chance to explore them personally, the western ghats are renowned for their once-in-twelve-years-blooming flowers, prehistoric cave paintings, and breathtaking sunsets. Meanwhile, the eastern ghats, closer to Calcutta, are crisscrossed by rivers from the Deccan Plateau, making them ecological hotspots, with three national parks and 24 different wildlife sanctuaries. Monsoons affect both coastal mountain ranges, as two pressure zones form off the coast of India. The high-pressure zone, which forms in the north, sends winds swirling through the frigid Arctic temperatures of the Himalayas, picking up little moisture. The low-pressure zone, however, forms swirling winds over the Bay of Bengal, spinning clockwise so that the moisture-rich clouds smack straight into the ghats. Clouds aren't incredibly smart, 
and as such, they've never figured out how to tunnel through a cloud. Their choices in life are pretty simple. Go around or go over. Always choosing the latter, they have to drop the moisture they've collected in order to proceed high enough to continue along their life's journey. The coasts of India, which is where a large portion of their people live, thus experience regular alternating seasons of extreme rainfall and drought. As more than 70% of the rainfall felt in India today is a result of low-pressure systems in the Bay of Bengal. The fact that the weather is predictable allows the peoples of the Indian subcontinent to plan accordingly. But weather and climate don't always behave according to the rules, and from time to time the monsoon rains never materialized. Such was the case in 1768, as only the lightest of rains came to India. It was followed in 1769 by a complete lack of rainfall during the traditionally wet summer months. Everything is interconnected within complex ecosystems, meaning that environmental change always results in cascade effects. Without the summer rains, rivers dwindled in size and fish ponds, a major source of protein on the subcontinent, turned to dust. Experienced traders would have recognized the early warning signs that always accompany the arrival of a horseman of the apocalypse. From there, the merchants would take one of two actions, both of which were detrimental to the society's well-being. Option one involved them hoarding food, putting it safely away for the proverbial rainy day so that their family would be able to outlast what was coming. The second option involved artificially raising profits, utilizing the fear of the coming suffering in order to make out like bandits. These two choices were prevalent throughout the famine-rich era of the French Revolution, which demonstrated what famine experts like to refer to as a clear-cut entitlement failure. It is because of the visibility of early warning systems that led Devereux to claim that famines are always political. This aspect of policy failure is among the most pressing shortcomings of governments, as the historian notes that famines occur because they are not prevented. They are instead allowed to happen. Think about it this way. The world produces more than enough food to feed the global population. Relief Web informs us that one-third of all food is wasted. Just that portion of food alone would be enough to feed the entire world four times over. The cataclysmic effects of famine have been with us since the beginning of civilization. Tony McMichael notes that the Bible recounts how Joseph, leader of the enslaved Israelites in Middle Kingdom Egypt, foresaw for the Pharaoh the seven years of drought and famine, symbolized in the Pharaoh's dream as seven lean cattle. Egypt was always prone to famine, caused by the give or lack thereof of the Nile's fertile waters. Indeed, the Old Kingdom, ruled by godlike pharaohs and adorned with pyramids, had collapsed around 2200 BCE because of climatic shifts that caused prolonged droughts, reductions in river flow, and serious famine. The same regional drought contributed to the collapse of the Akkadian Empire in Mesopotamia, 
and the Harappan civilization of the Indus Valley. A thousand years later, the rulers of Egypt's Middle Kingdom were more alert to the need to manage flood control and conserve agricultural resources, and less disposed to think of themselves as infallible gods on earth. German philosopher Hegel astutely pointed out that unfortunately the only thing that we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. While the ancient Incan civilizations protected themselves from famine by burying food reserves high up in the glaciers of the Andes, modern civilizations do little to prepare ahead of time for famine. Ending food insecurity is a part of the Biden administration's equity agenda but there isn't much effort towards significantly expanding our food supply, something that the Russian invasion of Ukraine highlighted. That incursion cut off Ukrainian grain exports, depriving the world of what has always been referred to as one of the world's bread baskets. Politico quotes the Biden administration warning that we see the storm coming noting that the odds of a global famine were dramatically increased as a result of the war in Ukraine. The fact that we can know what is coming but can't stop it is a true tragedy. Despite the interconnectedness of global trade routes, we continue to let people starve to death and die in refugee camps, which are the most susceptible places on the planet to famine. As our knowledge and ability to solve the problem increases, the casualty lists should decrease. Unfortunately, the opposite is happening, as 70 million people died as a result of the famine process in the 1900s, the highest total in recorded human history. The 1769 drought terrified everyone who lived within the Bay of Bengal, but not everyone was scared for the same reason. The native inhabitants of India worried about starvation, while the members of the EIC living and working in India were more worried about the company's declining stock price. That divergence in thinking would result in unspeakable tragedy that began in 1770. Famine affects you differently, depending upon where you are on the socioeconomic ladder. Hence the differences in how the two groups thought. Peter Walker, who literally wrote the book on famine early warning systems, focuses on the lower classes when he declared that famine is a socioeconomic process which causes the accelerated destitution of the most vulnerable, marginal, and least powerful groups in the community to a point where they can no longer as a group maintain a sustainable livelihood. As prices rose, wealthier families cut back on luxury items, but those already on the wrong side of the poverty line were required to make literal life or death decisions. Devereaux reveals that death rates aren't fixed during famines. The greatest at risk are infants aged 1 to 11 months, followed by children aged 5 to 9, 
before next jumping to anyone 45 years or older. Men are somewhat more likely to succumb than women, because in the words of the historian, females' bodies store more fat. That last bit was somewhat true in the Irish famine, and proved beyond a shadow of a doubt in the Dutch famine of 1944 and 45. In what became known as the Hunger Winter, female mortality increased by 73%, while male mortality rates skyrocketed to an astounding 169%. The correlation isn't a hard and fast rule, however, as cultural differences play a role as well. For instance, the Great Leap Forward famine resulted in far more deaths of young girls than boys, as the Chinese culturally valued their sons far more than their daughters. While London shareholders reveled in their prosperity, the majority of workers in the EIC-led country grappled with financial hardships. The company, in its pursuit of dominance, systematically quashed competitors, sometimes resorting to extreme measures such as imprisonment. All workers, regardless of their origin, toiled under the company's dictates, as it prioritized its own financial interests. According to historian William Dalrymple, the dire situation escalated, with drought giving way to famine in October of 1769. By November, desperate laborers resorted to unimaginable measures, including the heartbreaking act of selling their own children to alleviate their economic distress. Rural artisans and the urban poor, unprotected and without a safety net, were the first to sicken from malnutrition. Then, one by one, to begin dying from starvation or disease. Common misconceptions surround famines, and one key misunderstanding is the notion that victims primarily succumb to starvation. In reality, the immune system weakens significantly before reaching the point of extreme hunger. At this vulnerable stage, hunger-related diseases such as diarrhea and dysentery become fatal. The breakdown in societal structures during famines often give rise to pestilence, making them akin to one of the four horsemen. Cholera, malaria, measles, and typhus are among the most prevalent and lethal diseases that accompany such dire circumstances. Seventy percent of the rice crop was lost by February of 1770, and records indicate that the price of the available harvest had risen to ten times its normal rate. It's impossible to hide the suffering that accompanies a famine. Sir William Hunter, a member of the EIC, noted during the summer of 1770 that the husbandmen sold their cattle, they sold their implements of agriculture, they devoured their seed grain, they sold their sons and daughters, till at length no buyers of children could be found. They ate the leaves of the trees and the grass of the field, and in June the resident at the Durbar affirmed that the living were feeding off the dead. Day and night a torrent of famished and disease-ridden wretches poured into the great cities. 
so that soon the streets were backed up with promiscuous heaps of the dying and the dead. The scale of devastation was staggering. One city reported 500 deaths a day due to starvation in its streets. Even Calcutta, a bustling hub, did not escape the tragedy, with 76,000 lives claimed by hunger in a mere three-month period. The final estimates paint a harrowing picture. One out of every five Bengalis, possibly as many as 1.2 million people, succumbed to starvation in the year 1770. Predictably, a mass exodus ensued as individuals sought refuge from this famine, deemed an act of God. In the hope of finding sustenance in other provinces unaffected by the drought along the Ghats, people abandoned their homes. However, this brought forth unintended consequences. Firstly, abandoned farmland reverted to jungle, compounding the agricultural crisis. Secondly, the interconnected nature of food prices, even in the 18th century, meant that the influx of unemployed refugees strained other regions of India, pushing them from food insecurity to the brink of triggering their own man-made famines. Thirdly, the movement of starving refugees acted as vectors for disease outbreaks, resulting in epidemics wherever they traveled. In July of 1770, with the region facing a third consecutive year of insufficient rainfall, desperate individuals turned to divine intervention, as their political leaders offered them no solutions. Interestingly, the deity featured in the Old Testament seemed more inclined to inflict famine than alleviate it. Similarly, the Hindu deity Chamunda was unlikely to offer much assistance, as she was the god responsible for both pestilence and famines. She wasn't the most popular of the more than 300 Hindu manifestations of Brahman, as she is said to drink blood from the severed heads of her victims. In England, the famine was largely discussed in relation to the company's stock price. It was easier for international groups to ignore what was viewed by all as an unfortunate natural disaster. The modern infrastructure set up to alleviate hunger had yet to be set up, but the people were aware that they should assist others that were less fortunate. After all, the Enlightenment, which had begun in Europe 15 years earlier, purported to teach a widely held notion that humans had asserted their dominance over nature, as well as a belief that humans could have an effect even on the outcome of natural events. Initially, at least, that enlightened thought applied only within their own borders. But by the time of the 1770 Bengal famine, historian Lynn Hunt reveals that notions of human rights and empathy across gender, race, and international borders started appearing in the 18th century. Historian Thomas Haskell goes even further positing that the emergence of humanitarianism as a historical phenomenon requires four preconditions. A commitment to ethical principles that prioritize aiding strangers, a perception of casual involvement in others' suffering due to evil intent, the belief in the ability to intervene effectively, 
and the ability of ordinary, familiar, certain, and easily executable intervention methods. Each of these preconditions seem to exist for a company deeply connected to international trade, and who had a self-interest in preserving its workforce. But the company's response on the ground proved insufficient, and in many instances, detrimental. For instance, John Gross distributed a generous $65 worth of rice only after half of his workers had already succumbed to the famine. Interestingly, Haskell appears to be of the belief that the expansion of capitalism is directly correlated with the increase in international humanitarianism, despite the fact that the EIC's capitalist instincts have rightly been blamed for centuries of tragedy that befell the people of the subcontinent. His rationale is that capitalism relies upon people maintaining their word via contracts and that companies are powerless in the face of negative publicity. The capabilities of the 18th century, however, meant that few shareholders received information regarding the suffering of the Indian people. One anonymous newspaper editorial appeared in London in 1771. It claimed that by the time the famine had been about a fortnight over the land, we were greatly affected by Calcutta. Many thousands falling daily in the streets and fields whose bodies mangled by dogs, jackals, and vultures in that hot season made us dread the consequences of a plague. But the editorialist made a couple of key mistakes in their attempt to rally the British people. First, they generalized the amount of deaths to the quote, many thousands. Joseph Stalin taught us that one person's death is a tragedy while a million is a statistic. The absence of a face of the tragedy, which necessitates some portion of an individual's life story, dampens people's likelihood to tangibly help. This concept is known as psychic numbing, or the identifiable victim effect. Psychic numbing refers to the phenomenon where people become emotionally overwhelmed and less responsive to large-scale suffering or statistics while the identifiable victim effect suggests that individuals are more likely to feel empathy and take action when presented with a specific identifiable person or case rather than abstract numbers or generalizations. Their second mistake was to use animals that are not native to the audience in London, such as the jackal. That allows them to remind themselves that the problem is far from home. That is an issue referred to as psychological distancing, which allows the reader to mitigate the emotional impact of distressing events. Don Cheadle's excellent performance in the movie Hotel Rwanda as Paul Rusabinga asks how the international community cannot intervene when they witness the atrocities on TV. To which Akeem Phoenix's character responds frustratingly that, I think if people see this footage, they'll say, oh my god, that's horrible, and then go on eating their dinners. Which is the third mistake that the anonymous author makes, namely that he or she doesn't give them a reason for how the famine will affect them. 
capitalism operates on the understanding that, at our core, humans are motivated by self-interest, a concept even the fictional character Joey from the series Friends recognized. In one episode, Phoebe struggles to perform a good deed without benefiting herself in some way. However, it's unlikely that anyone would draw a direct comparison between the empathy of Phoebe Buffet and the East India Company. Consequently, it comes as no surprise that the anonymous whistleblower revealed that EIC officials began hoarding food at the first signs of drought. Nor would they be surprised to find out that the company's parties, which included lavish balls, continued throughout the crisis. One has to wonder about the humanity of some of the people who, while on their way to a ball, pass scenes such as the ones depicted in a 1771 newspaper article that claimed one could not pass along the streets without seeing the multitudes in their last agonies, crying out as you passed. Whilst on the other sides, numbers of dead were seen with beasts of prey feeding on their carcasses. The author of that particular article notes that, I have observed two people with a dually carrying twenty heads, and the remains of the carcasses that has been left by the beasts of prey to the river at a time. At this time, we could touch fish as the river were so full of carcasses, and of those who did eat it, many died suddenly. Cannibalism is a grim reality that often surfaces in times of famine. Documented instances include the infamous American Donner Dinner Party, the Great Leap Forward in China, Nazi concentration camps, and Stalin's Siberian labor camps. Lusik Saltzman, a Jewish survivor of Hitler's Holocaust, vividly recounts his personal encounter with cannibalism in his memoir, The 23rd Psalm. After enduring incarceration for nearly four years, during which he became a Musulman, someone unrecognizable even to themselves, Lusik stumbled upon a Soviet prisoner of war, selling what he believed to be meat soup made from wild dogs. Devouring the soup in his desperate state, Lusik later learned that the meat had been sourced from the bodies of fellow prisoners awaiting cremation. Despite this horrifying revelation, driven by starvation, he found himself compelled to finish the soup. Professor Cormac O. Grada, a renowned authority on famine, delves into the causes of cannibalism during the Irish potato famine, which was triggered by the devastating potato blight that decimated their primary food source. Ograda points out that when faced with the dire reality of food scarcity, instinct drives individuals to the extreme, resulting in what he terms as survivor cannibalism, the desperate attempt to sustain oneself by consuming the corpses of those who passed away, regardless of any familiar connection. This grim phenomenon extends beyond Ireland. In China, Faced with similar desperation, peasants resorted to hoarding the bodies of their deceased family members. 
The rationale behind such actions was the understanding that the available meat could be used to sustain another life, and the preference was for it to be a family member rather than a stranger that benefited. In such conditions, the fabric of civilization breaks down quickly. Regarding India, Dalrymple writes that some who had been appointed overseers of the poor proved so intent of their own interests that so far from working to procure plenty of grain, they were foremost in the use of violent methods to engross it. Whenever any loaded boat chanced to come to the market, the grain was dragged away by force. He also notes that the normally peaceful highways had become unsafe, and that highway robberies, once unknown, were now occurring every day, as the desperate and needy struggled to find ways to survive. Even modern armies struggle in the face of mass hunger. The U.S. Marines attempted to distribute food to starving Somalians, which was depicted in the phenomenal movie Black Hawk Down. If it's been a number of years since you've seen that movie, give it another go, particularly if you are a fan of the show Modern Family. As out of nowhere, there's a scene with Phil Dumphy hanging out in the midst of the chaos of Mogadishu, serving coffee to his fellow soldiers while he cracks jokes. In the tragic real-life incident, however, 18 U.S. soldiers lost their lives during a mission to apprehend a warlord. As the rescue operation went awry due to the challenging famine conditions on the streets, The EIC clearly didn't do enough to alleviate the conditions faced by their workers. Able to help, they instead turned a blind eye to suffering. Unfortunately, we all have moments where we ultimately decided not to help. Perhaps it was ignoring a panhandler as we rushed to make it to our dinner reservation. What most of us haven't done is to go out of the way to make that person's life worse. Witnessing their workforce dying off, the East India Company began to worry about their quarterly reports, something that always drives stock prices. Seeking to offset the losses within their semi-legitimate trading businesses, they raised taxes on the population of India and proceeded to rigorously enforce their collection. Keep in mind that food prices had already skyrocketed by more than 10 times their normal price. Raising taxes just meant the people had even less money to spend on necessities. And that money was critical, as EIC officials weren't the ones starving to death in the street. There was food to eat, just not food that was affordable for the majority of the indigenous population. Dalrymple tells us that platoons of sepoys were marched out into the countryside to enforce payment where they erected giblets in prominent places to hang those who resisted the tax collection. Even starving families were expected to pay up, as there were no remissions authorized on humanitarian grounds. The people of Calcutta were pillaged so thoroughly by their government that some increase in revenue had been made by 1771. In order to keep up such efforts, the East India Company stockpiled rice whenever it could, ensuring that the army was well-fed, an act that is regularly played out by dictators in famine-prone North Korea. 
As the famine ravaged the nation, share prices soared to unprecedented heights, prompting the company's directors to grant themselves a 12.5% raise. This exemplifies the repercussions of corporate greed, a theme echoed in history. In a stark parallel, the infamous American company Enron became a symbol of capitalist excess when its board of directors approved exorbitant raises, totaling hundreds of millions of dollars for themselves. Meanwhile, the company squandered $1.2 billion of its clients' retirement funds and an additional $2 billion in pension funds. The tragic outcome was compounded by the absence of golden parachutes for over 20,000 employees who lost their jobs under the failed leadership of the board. Company man Horace Walpole was one of those who knew that the scandal was growing too large to contain, warning that we have outdone the Spaniards in Peru. They were at least butchers on a religious principle, however diabolical their zeal. We have murdered, deposed, plundered, usurped. Say what think you of the famine of Bengal, in which three millions perished, being caused by a monopoly of the provisions by the servants of the East India Company. All this is coming out, unless the gold that inspired these horrors can quash them. And that is the answer that capitalism often turns to in the face of a criminal enterprise. Money. Money solves a number of problems for major corporations. It can settle lawsuits, ensuring that the public are never even made aware of the problem. It can be used to rebrand, burying the past beneath shiny new paint. It can also be used to flood the airways with positive stories, wrapping the company up in a self-preserving blanket of good news. But everyone needs to be on the same page for that to happen. Alexander Dow, a Scottish philosopher and historian, included the account of one EIC whistleblower in his work, The History of Hindostan. Dow notes that Bengal, from the mildness of its climate, the fertility of its soil, and the natural industry of the Hindus, was always remarkable for its commerce. The balance of trade was against all nations in favor of Bengal, and it was the sink where gold and silver disappeared without the least prospect of return. But since the company took over, the country has been depopulated by every species of public distress. In the space of six years, half the great cities of an opulent kingdom were rendered desolate, the most fertile fields in the world laid waste, and five millions of harmless and industrious people were either expelled or destroyed. Want of foresight became more fatal than innate barbarism, and the company's servants found themselves wading through blood and ruin when their object was only spoil. Dow finishes with the poetic line of a barbarous enemy may slay a prostate foe, but a civilized conqueror can ruin nations without the sword. Indeed, civilization is designed to prevent things like famine, 
It hadn't been written yet, but Kipling's infamous exhortation to imperialism in the poem White Man's Burden notes that it is the duty of the civilized man to, quote, fill full the mouth of famine and bid the sickness cease. The company's already tarnished reputation suffered a final blow with the publication of a sensational fake news story in 1772 by William Boltz. Boltz included likely untrue tales of weavers cutting off their own thumbs to avoid being compelled to wind silk in prison-like factory camps. These stories, though later deemed dubious, were avidly consumed by the public, who hoped Parliament would intervene to correct the reported abuses, according to accounts given to the EIC's Warren Hastings. Public sentiment swiftly shifted, causing a precipitous decline in the East India Company's shares in 1772. This marked the first recorded instance in history where a famine on one continent significantly impacted another. As recorded by Dalrymple on June 8, 1772, Scottish banker Alexander Fordyce disappeared, leaving behind debts totaling 550,000 pounds. His bank, Neil James Fordyce and Down, soon imploded and declared bankruptcy. Another institution with large investments in EIC stock, Douglas Heron & Company, otherwise known as the R Bank, closed its doors the following week, initiating a financial crisis that quickly spread across Britain into Europe. Recall our discussions from the first episode in this series, where we explored the notion that our entire financial system relies on confidence. Banking contagion at its core undermines that confidence. In the week following the initial collapse, several Dutch banks with speculative holdings in the East India Company faltered. Within a fortnight, the domino effect continued as 10 more banks across Europe failed. This trend intensified, with an additional 20 banks collapsing within the month and a staggering 30 more faltering by month's end. The British publication known as the Gentleman's Magazine observed that no incident in 50 years past has been remembered to have struck such a devastating blow both to trade and public credit. As a direct consequence to the credit crisis, relations between England and her 13 American colonies rapidly declined, as plantation owners, including Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, were unable to access the credit markets that their fields relied upon during planting season. Seeking to contain the contagion, the Bank of England deemed the EIC too big to fail. It first attempted to call in its prior loans to the company in order to spread the money throughout its financial veins. But the company wasn't able to front the money. Their inability to pay back their loan resulted in a harebrained scheme to dump literal tons of East India Company tea upon the American colonists. 18 million pounds of tea left EIC warehouses bound for the New World, where due to the middlemen involved, it costs significantly more than locally available teas. Due to the foundational economic laws of supply and demand, 
Americans refused to buy the expensive product. But the Bank of England needed the EIC to sell its tea, so that it could get its loans repaid in order to restore confidence within the European banking system. Thus, on May 10, 1773, the Parliament of England passed a law declaring that only East India Company tea could be sold within the colonies. Moreover, it would be subject to additional taxes, thus raising the price even higher. Seven months later, Samuel Adams was dumping 92,000 pounds of EIC product off the Boston Harbor. In terms of today's money, the company lost $1.7 million in the Boston Tea Party, while Americans lost access to 18,523,000 cups of overpriced tea that it hadn't asked for. Edmund Burke commissioned a report on the company's troubles and foresaw that it could, like a millstone, drag the government down into an unfathomable abyss finishing his report with a rhetorical flourish that this cursed company would at last, like a viper, be the destruction of the country which fostered it at its bosom. Fears soon emerged over the potential of a national bankruptcy. William Beryl even proclaimed on the floor of Parliament that let no gentleman think this is a trivial question of ministry or opposition. No, sir, it is the state of the empire, and perhaps upon it depends whether Great Britain shall be the first country in the world, or ruined and undone. This speech, plus the fact that most members of parliament were shareholders, probably saved the company. In exchange for the EIC accepting government regulation, the legislatures authorized what today would be a 147 million pound loan. Accepting this offer, the East India Company secured its place as the recipient of history's inaugural mega bailout. Dalrymple illuminates that in itself, the regulating act did little to muzzle the worst excesses of the East India Company, but it did create a precedent marking the commencement of a gradual process of state interference that would culminate in the company's nationalization 80 years later, in 1858. Concurrently, the act ushered in the appointment of 41-year-old Warren Hastings as the head of the company. As previously discussed in earlier episodes, Hastings stood out among company men for his profound respect for the indigenous peoples of the subcontinent. The act also marked the departure of Robert Clive, dubbed Lord Vulture by the London press. Despite receiving a golden parachute from the company, affording him a year-long tour of classical sites in Italy, Clive's wealth didn't equate to happiness. Leaders often grapple internally when power is wrestled from them, and two years after his removal from power, Clive took his own life at the age of 49. Without a suicide note, his death fueled speculation, with many attributing it to a guilty conscience finally catching up with him. Hastings got to work immediately. 
His most important act in relation to the famine was the creation of a series of public granaries, including the Great Goal at Pana, which still stands to this day. His actions were designed to ensure that the famine of 1770 was never repeated. It was an aspirational goal, but unfortunately, India has earned the nickname the Land of Famines and would unfortunately experience horrific repeats. Beneath British rule, the 1770 famine was merely the first of 12 notable periods of starvation. After the 1883 disaster, the Indian government codified into law an obligation to ensure adequate food supplies for its citizens. The famine's grip finally began to loosen when the long-awaited rains arrived, facilitating a return to normal harvests in 1771. Despite the tardiness of Hastings' interventions, they contributed to stabilizing the population and aiding their return to the coast, thereby restoring order. The staggering toll of the famine saw as many as 10 million lives lost over a three-year period prompting global citizens to reassess their perspectives. However, Adam Morissette highlights the grim consequence, as the 1770 famine led to an even wider gap between England and India. Contrary to fostering compassion or humanitarianism, public accounts of the famine exacerbated cultural misunderstandings, reinforcing the perception of Indian society as foreign and inscrutable. Some writers blamed the Indians for their own suffering, arguing that their perceived lack of anger and protest mirrored Europe's poor and hungry. Such stereotypes portrayed Indians as unenlightened compared to the British, further entrenching the East India Company's presence in the lives of the Indian people. I hope that this was an informative look into not only the Great Bengal Famine, but also into the devastation that comes from this horseman of the apocalypse. In 2023, more than a billion residents of our shared planet are said to be on the brink of hunger. Meanwhile, wars in Yemen, Sudan, and conflict throughout the Horn of Africa continue to produce starvation, and climate change threatens the ability to produce adequate amounts of food in nations throughout the world. Unfortunately, we have been unsuccessful at eradicating this form of disaster. But there are a number of organizations working towards that goal. If you want to put your money towards that mission, I would suggest looking into the World Food Program, the Mercy Corps, or World Central Kitchen. Each organization will have a link provided in this episode's show description. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.